Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It is good once again to gather with you and open God's Word together. Uh, we're going to continue our series to the book of 1 Thessalonians called In the Waiting. And let me warn you, today is a little bit PG-13. Uh, the topic of the text this morning is about sexual immorality. So if you're a parent, we just want to encourage you today to use your discretion. If you think your child is ready for a conversation like this, then fantastic. Have them listen in and be prepared to define some terms. If you don't think your kids are quite ready for this particular conversation, then maybe you want to have them not watching or listening until you can get a feel of what's going on in this message this morning. We're excited to dive into God's Word and see that the Bible really does give us an informed, biblical, Christian sexual ethic. And I pray today we would all be encouraged. So before we dive into God's Word together, let's pause for just a moment and pray. Father, we do thank you that your word speaks so plainly. We thank you that it, it gives us guidance on all kinds of issues in life, even matters that are personal and private, such as a sexual ethic. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and speak to your people today. I pray that Gospel Hope would be a church that really submits to your word, even when it's countercultural. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No doubt many of you have seen footage of a running of the salmon. It's really an amazing natural phenomenon that happens basically every year during September, October, and thousands of salmon return from the ocean and swim up rivers and lakes to get back to the place of their birth. What is particularly amazing about this event is that as they swim backwards, some salmon have to go almost a thousand miles. Others of them have to make jumps of up to 12 feet to overcome obstacles in their way. And every inch, every foot, every yard, and every mile that those salmon swim is against the current. Uh, the reason I bring this up because I think it's a great metaphor for what Jesus calls his followers to do. Many times, as, as those who want to take our faith seriously and follow God's word and his guidance and direction in our life, we are called to swim against the current of our culture. To put it very plainly, God's people must often swim against the current of culture. No doubt in this particular season that we find ourselves in, you have found this to be particularly true in your life. I know many of you as compassionate and conscientious followers of Jesus are trying to think through and navigate well uh, the recent cultural moments that we find ourselves. COVID-19, the racial tension in our nation. And I know many of you are seeking and striving to please the Lord. And I'm certain that because of this, often during these challenging times, you have felt pressured by maybe the political agenda or maybe uh, the culture at large or maybe even people that you love to think one way or think another. And you're just not sure if you fit into any box very neatly and you feel like you are pushing against the current. Well, if this is you, take heart. I think this is just part of what it means to follow Jesus. Because we are ultimately citizens of heaven, I think if we are really faithfully trying to follow our Lord, there will be many times in our lives where we find our steps ourselves out of step with the culture. Here's the reality. The Christian life is countercultural. 
Let me say that again. The Christian life is countercultural. When we trust in Jesus, he doesn't simply give us a ticket to heaven. He begins to reconstruct our values and our priorities and align our thinking more and more with his thinking. Uh, you know, Jesus, to use a metaphor, doesn't just come in and redecorate. He completely renovates, or as Paul says over in the book of Colossians. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, your priorities have changed, and God calls you to live in a way that is many, many times, oftentimes, going to be out of step with the larger culture around you. One of the ways that the Bible's teaching is really out of step with our current cultural value system is the way that the Bible talks about sex. To put it simply, if you are seeking to have a biblical sexual ethic in today's culture, you will find yourself not in sync with the dominant views of sex of the culture at large. Look at our text today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and zone in there on verse number 3 with me. It says this, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his body in holiness and honor. Now notice verse 5 in particular, Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Did you catch that? What Paul is saying there is if you are trying to view sex in the way that he views sex, if you're trying to have a biblical sexual ethic, you will be going against the current. That's essentially what the little phrase there means, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This apparently was a needed reminder in Thessalonica, and as you are aware, it remains incredibly relevant for us today. Which leads me to the simple point this morning, which is this. We must think biblically about sex. Now, I realize as soon as I say this, some people will think, great. A sermon on why sex is bad. Uh, this is just what we need. Some sort of prudish teaching from the church on why we shouldn't have sex or why we shouldn't want sex. Well, hear me out on this. While 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is certainly focused on avoiding sexual immorality, that is the thrust of this passage, it is not all that the Bible says about sex. You know, as you read through the scripture, there are numerous passages on human sexuality. And while the scripture does warn about the danger of immorality, it also tells us that sex is a gift of God intended for the good of his people. For instance, we read, over in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. In other words, God is the creator of the one flesh sexual relationship for the good of his people. Or if you read very explicitly over in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says this about marital relationships. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe, 
Let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. What am I getting at here? Well, a summary of the Bible's teaching on sexuality would simply be this. Sex is a good gift from God intended to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Sex is a good gift from God intended to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in the context of marriage. In this way, sex is like a power tool. Now, you say, what are you talking about? That's kind of a weird analogy. Well, yeah, but have you ever used a power tool? These things are amazing. I mean, think about a chainsaw and what you can do with that. You can chop down a tree that by hand it would take all kinds of time to do, or, or a cordless drill. You can take the power of a drill and use it to unscrew things or drill holes in walls, and you can take it anywhere because you don't even need a cord. These tools are a tremendous blessing and have wonderful benefits but you can't just use them in any context. If you use them in the wrong context, all of a sudden they become a very, very dangerous thing. If you use a chainsaw and don't know how to use it or use it in an unsafe way, you can not only hurt yourself, but hurt others around you. And the same is true of all power tools. And I think this is a wonderful picture of what sex is. Sex is a wonderful thing with wonderful benefits, but it must be used properly or else it can hurt you and hurt others around you. And that is why God, in his wisdom and his love for his people, has given us some warnings about why we should avoid sexual immorality. In other words, why we should practice sex in the way that he designed it and not take it outside of that relationship. So what I want to do this morning is just unpack from you, Lord willing, briefly from this passage, four reasons why to avoid sexual immorality, and they're all rooted in who God is and his relationship to us. So number one, if you're taking notes, is simply this. We should avoid sexual immorality because God is our king. You see, when a person trusts in Jesus, not only does he become their savior, but he becomes their lord, their master, their king, which means that he, God, becomes the ultimate authority in the follower of Jesus's life. And in this passage, our king tells us exactly what he wants from us. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 3 once again. For this is God's will, your sanctification. The word sanctification essentially means growth in godliness or growth in holiness. And so what this passage is saying is that God desires his people to be becoming more and more like Jesus, growing in their walk with him and growing in their holiness. So how do we pursue this end? Well, read on. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. In other words, the way that we pursue holiness, according to here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, is by avoiding sexual gratification outside of the context of marriage. That's what the word sexual immorality means. This would have been a necessary warning in the culture in which Paul was writing. Because in the first century Roman world, uh, sexual immorality was very prevalent from incest to extramarital affairs to all kinds of sexual deviation happening in the culture. And Paul is saying, hey, that's not God's will for your life, Thessalonians. God wants you to avoid sexual immorality. 
Then he goes on and he emphasizes this idea even more plainly in verses four and five, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul is speaking to his believers and he's saying, man, if you really know God, it's gonna transform your sexual ethic. Or to put it very plainly, a relationship with Jesus changes your relationship with sex. When you have a relationship with Jesus, it changes the way you think about sexual gratification. Imagine yourself just for a moment as a, as a person there in Thessalonica in the first century Roman world. You probably would have been a participant in the idol worship of the Roman pantheon. And part of that idol worship was not only religious rituals where intercourse was part of it, but also the regular and common employment of cult prostitutes. And then you came to know Jesus. You turned away from your sins and said, no, Jesus is the one and true God. He is the one whom I am to give my allegiance. He is my king now, not some Roman Caesar, not some Roman false God. Jesus is my king. And what would happen? Well, all of a sudden, your sexual ethic would begin to change. Paul puts that very pointedly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Because don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God. And catch this next phrase, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What is Paul saying? He's basically saying, now if you have come to follow Jesus, he is your king and he gets to tell you how to use your body. No matter what your sexual history or no matter what the current culture says is permissible, from porn to sexual fluidity. If you have believed the gospel, you've turned away from your sins and put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. Listen, part of that means that Jesus is the Lord of your body. He is in charge of you. He is the king. He gets to call the shots. And part of living in submission in Christ means submitting sexually to him. Listen, I know there are all kinds of temptations in the world, but if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to take your faith seriously, you cannot say to the Lord, Lord, you can have all of my life except for this area. Hands off. This is still mine. No, no, no. That's not part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When we come to Jesus as Lord, we're like, Lord, take it all. Here's the keys. You have access to every corner and recess of my life. You are king, including over my sexuality. So that brings us to kind of our second reason why we should avoid immorality. Not only is God our king, but also God is our father. Look at verse 6. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. He, here Paul uses familial language to show that those who trust in Jesus are not only connected to God, but actually connected to one another. I, I think the idea that he's trying to get across is simply this. All sin is a breach of relationship. We do not and I would even say cannot sin in a vacuum. When you sin, when I sin, which is often, 
it is always against God and or against another human being made in the image of God. And this is true of sexual sin. We cannot sin in a vacuum. Let me unpack that just a little bit. When two people engage in immorality, in that moment, not only are they grieving the Lord and sinning against him, but they're actually sinning against one another. Saying yes to premarital or extramarital sex is not a mark of love. It's a mark of selfishness. Some commentators even believe that in this passage, Paul has in mind the potential spouses of those who practice immorality in view. In other words, if you engage with someone sexually who is not your spouse, you're not only sinning against that person, but you're sinning against the person who will be their spouse. Whatever the case, immorality is intrinsically relational. We don't just sin against God. We don't just sin against ourselves. We sin against other people. So you may hear that and and some people's mind would immediately go, what, what about private forms of immorality? Like pornography or masturbation. How are these breaches of relationship? Well, think about it for a minute. That image on the screen or that glossy photo in your mind or, or that idea of this other person is a person made in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. That's not an object to be consumed and fawned over. That is a person made in the image of God. And when we reduce image bearers to objects, that is a sin against that person, whether you have met them face to face or not. I think what the Lord is trying to communicate here is simply this. Immorality is never a victimless offense. Immorality is never a victimless offense. Not only do we sin against God, we actually sin against other people through immorality. My prayer for Gospel Hope is that we would be a church that fights immorality by seeing members of the opposite sex as brothers and sisters. That's how Paul talks about them here brothers and sisters. And as our brothers and sisters, we should seek to protect them in a way that holds up that lofty position. We should avoid sexual immorality because yes, God is our king, but also God is our father and other people are our brothers and sisters. Number three, third reason we should avoid sexual immorality is that God is our judge. Now, if these first two points challenge our culture, this one is downright offensive. In our society, which values self-determination and in which the most quoted phrase from the Bible is don't judge, it seems an attack that the fact that anyone, including God himself, would have the audacity to say that he will judge his creation. And yet, that's exactly what the text says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 6. The Lord is the avenger of all these offenses. So this is in the context of sexual immorality. And God is saying, I'm the one who will avenge. Now this certainly does not mean that mercy and grace is unavailable to those who fail in this area. That's not what this text says. The Bible is full of promises of forgiveness and restoration even to people who feel themselves far beyond repair. 
Nevertheless, I think warnings like this in the scripture are to relieve us from the foolish notion that we live in a consequence-free world. We don't. We live in a world where our choices matter, or to put it very plainly, actions have consequences. And even though many sexual sins are performed in the dark, hidden, God sees, God knows, and based on this passage of scripture and others, he judges. Look over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, where the Lord says a very similar thing. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I think passages like these, like Hebrews chapter 4, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, are put in the scripture for at least two reasons. The first one is this. I think these passages are meant to be a comfort. You say, Ryan, what are you talking about there? These don't feel very comfortable at all. Well, think about it for a moment. Sadly, over the last few years, it has come to light that sexual abuse has silently, and in many cases, secretly, been running rampant in our country. While we are greatly that some of these things have been exposed and be made known, our hearts break for the myriad of victims who have and did continue to silently suffer. I think this passage is meant to be a comfort to those who have been hurt and harmed by the sexual victimization of others. Even when human justice is miscarried, the Bible here plainly tells us that divine justice will triumph in the end. So if you've been hurt in some way by sexual abuse, God sees, God knows, and God will judge. That doesn't necessarily diminish the pain. It doesn't make it go away, but it does give us hope that the Lord is the righteous stud and a measure, judge and a measure of comfort should come to our heart that the Lord knows us even when we're suffering. But I think this passage is also supposed to impact us in another way. Not only bring comfort to those who have been victimized, but also it's to act as a deterrent. What do you mean by that, Ryan? Well, I think this is a mercy of God to give us warnings that he will judge those who go after sexual immorality to keep us from sexual sin. It's like a, a fence, as it were, that's saying, don't go over there. The bridge is out ahead. This is dangerous territory ahead. While all of us have heard and we rejoice at stories of the Lord taking an extremely sexual, broken situation and bringing beauty out of that. And we take great joy in that. This passage and others like it try to encourage us to avoid those things altogether, to steer away from immorality, to keep us from experiencing the devastating consequences of sexual immorality that it has on us and it has on other folks through that process. Look, let me just say this very, very plainly. Pornography warps sex and objectifies image bearers. We want to avoid that. Adultery always damages and often destroys marriages. We want to destroy that. Sexual experimentation sears the conscience and confounds the soul. We want to avoid that. Abuse devastates, 
devastates victims' lives. We want to avoid that, and lustful thinking hinders our intimacy with the Lord. So we want to steer clear of that. The Lord is not trying to make your life or my life or anyone's life miserable by saying that he will judge sexual sin. What the Lord is doing is he's trying to point us to a life and a path that will really satisfy. Look, listen to this principle. Warnings of God's judgments are evidences of God's love. The reason God tells us to steer clear of these things is because he loves us. He wants what's best for us, and he wants to protect us from the devastating consequences that sexual sin can often bring about in people's lives. Gospel hope, will you trust that God both knows and wants what is best for you in the area of your sexuality? So you might hear all this and think, man, Ryan, intellectually, I completely agree with you. I should avoid immorality. Man, that is obvious to me. But we live in a lust-crazed, sex-saturated, pornified world. How am I actually supposed to live purely in this impure culture? It feels like I'm wearing my Sunday best. I got on a white suit or a white shirt or a white dress and I'm going to a pizza restaurant. Spilling feels unavoidable. Man, I, I know how you feel on that. But here's the good news. Listen to this. Here is the hope of this sermon. Because of Jesus, immorality is not inevitable. Because of Jesus, immorality is not inevitable. You do not have to be swept along with the current of our culture. You can swim up against the current and avoid immorality. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, that leads me to verse number seven. Look at the text again. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Verse eight, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God. Pause, look at this last phrase. This is the critical phrase right here. Who gives you his Holy Spirit. Amen. That's it. That is our hope. The Lord does not expect us to swim against the current on our own, but he has given us his powerful Holy Spirit to enable us to follow him, which leads me to point number four and the final reason why we can and should avoid sexual immorality. It is this. God is our empowerer. He is our king. Yes, He is our father, yes. He is our judge, yes. But he is our in power. Just before Jesus was arrested and betrayed and gathered with his disciples, here's the words he said to them in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And in a sense, I think they were probably asking the same question we are. Like, how? How am I going to keep your commands? How am I going to follow you? How am I going to truly love you and live a life of holiness in this unholy world? Jesus answers the question in this way, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. 
the world is unable to receive him because it, it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him. Why? Because he remains with you and will be in you. You see, when Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he didn't just do it to take you to heaven one day. That's awesome that he did that. Jesus did change our destiny on the cross, but Jesus also died so that we could follow him, so that we could live a holy life in this unholy world. The Holy Spirit enables us to live a holy life. And that is a blood-bought gift that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. I realize that pushing against our culture in this manner can seem like a daunting task. But, but just like those salmon who have something weird in their DNA that God has put in there that enables them the ability and the stamina to go against the current and find their way home. If you have been trusted in the gospel, if you have turned away your sins and put your hope in Jesus Christ, you are now indwelt by the powerful Holy Spirit. And because of his presence in you, you now have the ability and the stamina to push against the grain of the culture even even in our hypersexualized world. You can do it because Jesus died to make that possible. And because of this truth, I have gospel hope for gospel hope. I really do. My, my heart is filled with hope in the gospel for our church that we can be a place where singles fight for purity and joy in God's design where married couples actually have healthy, satisfying sex lives, where girls and women are primarily valued for the strength of their character, not their physical attractiveness, where men and boys actively learn how to guard and fight their hearts against the ubiquitous pull of lust, where victims of abuse find comfort, where pornography is hated and battled, where inappropriate innuendos that degrade people are out of place, where those who struggle with sexual identity find hope and encouragement from the Word of God and the people of God, where those who have a past of brokenness begin to experience freedom and wholeness and forgiveness through the work of Jesus, where human sexuality is not viewed as a God but as a gift from God who wants and knows what is best for his people. I realize that's a tall order, but I am hopeful. You know why? Because though temptation is strong, the spirit is stronger. Yes, this world has its hooks all over the place, and it's trying to lure us into sexual sin, but the Holy Spirit living inside of you is more powerful than any trick that the devil has. If you have trusted in Jesus, you can live a holy life you can be pure in an impure world. So what's the path forward? How do we begin to pursue this life where we think about sex biblically and live in a way that is conformed to the image of God? Or as the text says, how do we pursue the will of God for our lives, our sanctification? Let me offer just three suggestions. And these are far from exhaustive. I could say much more, but let me offer three ways that we as a church family can begin to fight impurity 
and battle for holiness and sexual purity in our church. Number one, fight prayerfully. Will you simply begin to ask God to help you to swim against the current? Ask him to help you see areas in your life where you need to more aggressively battle against immorality. The Spirit is willing. He is ready to help you. He is eager to help you put down lust in your heart. Turn to him. Ask him. Prayer is not plan B. It's plan A. This is a good strategy. This is not the only thing we can do. This is the thing we must do. So pray and begin to ask God to help you to fight against the pull of immorality in our world. Second, fight intentionally. You know that the the pornography industry is a $12 billion industry annually. That's billion with a B. And it's consistently growing and preying on more and more people. No longer do you have to walk down to the corner store and make a series of decisions in order to purchase some pornographic literature. No, pornography has not only found its way into every home, but to, into every pocket. Because with our smartphone phones, you have access to pornography at a click. At, at Gospel Hope, we want to fight against this temptation. And one of the ways that we're doing that is for every member of the Gospel Hope family, if, if you want to take advantage of the resource called Covenant Eyes, it's an accountability software that helps you to have strategic conversations about what's going on in your heart, what you're watching on your various devices. We at Gospel Hope are providing that for free for every member of the Gospel Hope family. If you're interested in that, you can click on the link down in the comments. We'll put the, we'll put the way you can get to that right here on the screen. But take advantage of that. It, if you say that you want to do that, it's not a, a, an admission that somehow you're struggling with it, but an admission that you want to be holy and fight for your purity in your life. Let's fight intentionally and not be passive against the pornified culture that we live in. And finally, fight communally. We are in a war. And you don't fight a war as an individual. You fight it as an army. So in your battle against sexual temptation, let's link arms with fellow believers who can support you and encourage you and lift you up and offer you grace and forgiveness and healing when you stumble. One way that we at Gospel Hope try to facilitate those relationships is through our community groups. So my prayer is if you're not already plugged into a group at Gospel Hope, you will do so because we are in this together. Satan is the master of this world and he wants to destroy your relationships, your view of the opposite sex, your marriage. Your, he wants to destroy your life. And one way that we can battle that is by linking arms together and saying we are striving. We are striving to let the Bible inform the way that we think about sex in this world that, that it requires us to really swim against the current. We need one another if we're going to make it. So fight communally. Oh, Gospel Hope, we love you. We're so grateful for you. And we're just praying that God would do a mighty work among us and cause us to live holy in an unholy world. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us not only from the penalty of our sins, but you sent him to give us the spirit that we may have victory over the power of our sin today. And Lord, I am sure that there are folks in our congregation that are struggling with sexual sin and sexual temptation in a variety of ways. I pray that 
by your powerful spirit, you would move in their hearts, encourage them, help them, strengthen them, challenge them. Lord, you know, you know what needs to be done. So I pray that you would help us, help us to pursue you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's swim against the current together, Gospel Hope.